sometimes we just need to say it out loud. Hard things are hard. And we need to do the hard things and we need to build teams of people who can do the hard things and we need to be willing to do the hard things or they won't get done and the world doesn't change if we only do the easy things and only win the easy fights. There's a very small proportion of this country that is ever going to be doing okay. So organizing in Missouri is hard and organizing Missouri is also right. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I continue to be interested in the progressive infrastructure in the states, and my guest today knows a lot about that. She is Molly Fleming, an important community activist in Missouri and director of Move and Move Action, which are the C3 and C4 coordinating bodies and hubs for grassroots action in that state. Move stands for the Missouri Organizing and Voter Engagement Collaborative. They work behind the scenes supporting existing grassroots movement organizations in developing and executing strategic integrated voter engagement plans. I spoke with Molly about how and why she went about putting MOVE together, what they do, and the state of politics in the state of Missouri. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Molly Fleming at MOVE. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Molly, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, So my name is Molly Fleming. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm the director of Move and Move Action. So we are the C3 and C4 coordinating bodies in Missouri um, and also hubs for grassroots organizing in the state. I live in Kansas City now, and I was born and raised here um, in a white Irish Catholic working class family. My dad works grocery my mom was a preschool teacher, and um, a lot of what ultimately I didn't know at the time propelled me into organizing lives at the intersection of my dad being in a grocery union that was busted when my mom was pregnant with my third brother, which was something that was way too easy to have happen in Missouri and the nation as a whole in the late 80s. And I live in one of the more segregated cities in the nation that, like, you know, is a state that was a slaveholding state and, like, carries this deep legacy of how racial inequities and a black-white divide have just defined our identities or, or like lack thereof. So I came up in Kansas City, never really went anywhere else and kind of ran screaming after I graduated from high school. I went to school in Chicago and really cut my teeth on a lot of activism connected to anti-war efforts. I didn't have this language at the time, but had a theory of change that was if I wanted to see change in my community and on you know major systemic issues like 
war and life and death. I cut my teeth on anti-war activism because a lot of the people that I knew growing up and in my neighborhood had joined the Air National Guard to pay for school, thinking it was a way to get there and then got shipped overseas. So I ended up um, getting connected to Dan Showman up in Chicago, who was like Obama's legislative guy and ended up running a lot of his Senate primary and worked on Obama's Senate primary and a lot of just Illinois and Chicago races at the time. So worked on Tammy Duckworth's 06 race and some aldermanic stuff and other local legislative things. Ended up in Jan Schakowsky's office as a constituent advocate for a little while there. And then really 180'd and decided I wanted to do something that was closer to community and, again, didn't have the language yet, but like a systemic orientation of, of getting to root causes of poverty and pain. And I ended up teaching. I taught out in New York for a while. I taught special education at PS 197, where Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Chuck Schumer, and Bernie Sanders all went to grade school back in the day. Not quite as, you know, Eastern European, Russian Jewish of a student body now, but taught SPED for a few years there and ended up having some reorientation to what community-based systemic policy change could look like, kind of this intersection of wanting to be closer to community, but also involved in political change. And also had a reckoning that brought me back to Kansas City, where I'm from and where all of my family lives and has mostly never left. A lot of whom, you know, on a daily basis, maybe aren't doing as well as other folks and ended up getting um, connected to community organizing. So back in 2010, came back to Kansas City, started organizing with a PICO Federation Faith in Action as a community organizer, working on a lot of economic issues, but particularly payday lending reform. And, you know, if you're not familiar with payday lending, a lot of states have it in place, but other states have been able to ban it. In the state of Missouri, we were one of the birthplaces of payday lending. Quick cash got started in Kansas City. And the legal interest rate cap at the time was almost 2,000% APR. Um, Average interest rates are almost 500% APR. So you could get a payday loan to cover $50 electric bill and end up paying thousands of dollars. Yikes. Yeah. Overwhelming. And we had been going to the state legislature or my organization had been going to the state legislature for over a decade trying to change the laws. And at the time, Missouri had no um, campaign caps and payday lenders ran the place on both sides of the aisle. And so, you know, you get into a bargaining, a negotiating meeting about legislation and they, you know, try to reduce the interest rate cap to 1500%. So we took that sucker to a ballot initiative A much longer story that I often like to tell over a beer, but the short version is the payday lending industry had a no-holds-barred orientation to keeping that ballot initiative off the ballot, and we were simultaneously working to raise the minimum wage um, because they knew if we made the ballot, we'd win because our interest rate cap of 36% was super popular with voters, and we missed qualifying for the ballot timeline-wise after things got caught up in courts. And got a lot clearer through that experience when grassroots organizations and labor organizations came together to work on the statewide ballot initiative that we needed to move beyond campaign coalitions and into multi-cycle like orientation about power building and long-term collaboration. And so the organization I run now was really born out of that fight, this understanding that we needed to get very clear about what is the like the math of the power that we need to build to get to an actual governing capacity and how do multiple organizations representing faith organizing farm organizing labor black liberation um, repro organizing environmental justice like how do we come together to get clear which parts of that puzzle do we each need to hold um, to be able to win campaigns but ultimately shift the missouri electorate well, so you're in the middle of Missouri politics. I, I am. 
middle, um, periphery, all top, bottom, all different locations within it. Yep. Uh, and I don't know it except from afar, so I have a lot to ask you about, I guess. I, I do want to pick up a couple questions I had about that bio. You said you went to a Chicago college. Which one? I went to Loyola University Chicago, which was a great experience. I applied to about 20 schools and I made my decision mostly on who gave me the most money. And that is not the best way to always make a decision um, where I could go the cheapest, but it was a great experience. What did you study there? I ended up studying political science. So like a lot of us in this work, but it took me a really long time to declare that. I didn't declare my major till I was almost a junior. I had a real getting my money's worth orientation. So I always took about 18 hours every semester and mostly things that interested me, but also things that um, satisfied the core requirements. You know, I was really torn on, did I want to do political science? Did I want to do politics? I wasn't sure that I did. And then when I looked at junior year and I really needed to get clear about making a major designation, I had almost gotten the degree. (laughs) Like I had almost gotten like the qualified number of courses I needed and both, well, that was the easy path, but also I was like, well, this is clearly what you want to study if it's the courses that you're taking. When you look back on that, after all these years in politics, was there anything particularly valuable that you studied? Yeah, I think, you know, a big picture, I think just getting a liberal arts education in that world and that environment was more formative than the particular major that I had. Like, having this experience. I lived in Rogers Park, Chicago, which is like a legitimately stably diverse neighborhood. Um, Ninth Congressional District of Chicago, one of the most diverse congressional districts in the country. Like the experience coming out of what was both, you know, an insular, but also very limited, narrow life experience growing up for that. And we went camping, you know, my first time on a plane was mostly visiting colleges going to Chicago. Um, It was really mind opening in an important way. It's like, you know, seeing a color you never knew existed for the first time. But Mike Quigley was one of my professors and, um, you know, Congressman was an alderman at the time. And um, there were some other folks who like actually came out of politics and just had a much more brass tacks ability to articulate the connections between policy and people, but also, you know, the kind of transactional world of campaigning. I also took, I don't remember if they were in the political science realm, but I remember taking some classes around like race and identity formation that were also really critical for me. The language of intersectionality hadn't really been coined by Kimberly Crenshaw yet, but it was getting at that. And it was getting at a lot that I wrestled with as a white working class woman who lived at different points in my life in like very black neighborhoods or very white neighborhoods and mostly went to white Catholic schools. Um, there was an important part of my identity formation, like in a wrestling way, like questioning my identity in an important way to get clearer on the other side of it. I was interested that you had spent a fair amount of time on the campaign side and then a fair amount of time in the legislative office governing side uh, early in your career. What did you like about each one of those and what did you dislike? Yeah. And a lot of that point in my life, I was young and like wasn't working full time in any of those things, going to school and and working a lot and and working my class schedule around that. And some of those were volunteer experiences too. I think so much of what I liked about campaigning was actually the rush of it and being in a community of like-minded individuals who were like in the trenches around this thing with like huge energy 
And a real orientation of transformation that was frankly probably naive at the time. Like if we win this race, then everything's different. And when you're in a very liberal bastion, like where I was living in Chicago at the time, it was easy to believe those myths sometimes. But yeah, I loved the rush and the energy of what could sometimes feel like a game in campaigning, quite frankly. It's some of what turned me off later in life. I think some of this is Congresswoman Schakowsky has an excellent constituent advocacy arm and is really committed to that in her district. But like, I had no idea how much members of Congress are actually investing in their constituent offices and like what they really do to help their constituents navigate the federal government. And coming out of, you know, a family and a community that had a real orientation of like, you know, maybe not fully um, processed, but like a powerlessness around what's happening in the world and community and our impact on democracy, you know, drop off voters that, you know, pay attention in the presidential sometimes. I remember my mom once said something to me in the midst of a kind of a tougher time, like, you know, we're people who have things happen to us. We don't make things happen. There was actually vehicles helping people navigate the things that were happening to them and sometimes getting really great outcomes. That was an awesome glimpse into, like, frankly, the humanness of of people who are elected and are members of Congress. And I guess the, the light side of what sometimes can be a dark and light-sided coin. Did you feel like you were empowering yourself with this knowledge and feeling more I don't know, efficacious in the world? Yeah, I, I think I had some sense of power. And I think some of that was both an ability to impact, you know, I was a very junior constituent advocate. So I got like the rush passport cases more than anything. Like I wasn't in these very critical you know, immigration cases where somebody had horrible cancer and had been waiting for 16 years to get an opportunity to come into the country and just some much higher stakes things that more senior folks worked on. But yeah, I think this idea of being a human that could help add humanity to a very complex set of widgets that folks feel like they're encountering government was an empowering experience. Um, I also think that there's like a maybe not helpful (laughs) heady side of like, oh, look, I have all this power and I'm 22. Like I can sign a letter that my boss will add the congresswoman's signature to. I think there's a little head trip thing that I actually got aware was happening in that space. Um, Because I really imagined myself on a trajectory of like getting into the political side of, you know, congressional support and what that would look like to move to D.C. And all of that is a fabulous path. But um, I also see how it did like was a bit of an ego stoke for me. And that's not a terrible thing. But I remember like checking that in myself um, in my early 20s. Did you think about running for office ever? Or do you know? No, you know, I I have had folks poke me on that here and there. And I, you know, maybe there's a future when I'm retired from this part of the world that I am in. I operate as the director, but of a backbone organization now. Like my judgment is my most impactful place on the field is in, in these backbone and organizing centric roles. One of the things that actually got me a lot clearer about the fact I didn't think I wanted to work for an elected anymore was working for somebody I was as aligned with as Congresswoman Schakowsky, who is really wonderful. At the time, I would have said, oh, there's nothing I disagree with her on. And um, having an experience of disagreeing with the position she took, an Israel defensive position, and um, really struggling with needing to answer the phone calls from angry constituents about that, like needing to read the script for the first time ever. And that got me clear. That orientation of being accountable to an individual and working for a candidate or an elected, at least at that point in time and and not in this current point in time, didn't make sense for me. And the ways in which accountability to campaigning 
for yourself as an individual felt like a real challenge. And I think we've seen new models of that that have me more intrigued, but like, I, I really appreciate being accountable explicitly to grassroots organizations, community-based organizations and my membership and it not being my role to then have to get elected by the electorate to, to be able to do that. Yeah. Do you think that the teaching you did of kids has been relevant to the jobs that you have lately? There is nothing on my resume that people think looks more out of place than teaching elementary schools, teaching special education. And there is really nothing that has been more formative than teaching special education. And it is um, a combination of like, you have to have a real clarity that everyone has something to give and bring. And this is a key part of organizing is like, how do I unleash this in you? Um, but the ability to think about individualization and like time management and developing curriculum and good training and like, what is the outcome of this 45 minutes I have with you, 15 of which you're going to be paying attention? And how do I structure engaging you accordingly to get to that outcome? Like all of that was just totally critical in ways I never could have imagined to being able to organize myself and think about developing other people and ultimately like get really clear, what am I trying to get done and how to best do I use very, very limited time to do it? Yeah, I can see how that would be. You used the word reckoning to talk about deciding to move back to Kansas City, and I wasn't clear about what precisely you were referring to there. What did you mean? It was easier to not live here. Like It was easier to not be responsible for a place that I was from whose politics were tougher, um, whose outcomes were more challenging, and were like a lot of people I love deeply and like feel accountable to weren't always doing like as well as they could be, especially like economically. Um, it was a lot easier to live in a very progressive city. And I'm good at the things, even though I came from a you know, slightly more challenged like economic background, I'm like good at the things that are celebrated by, you know, traditional academics and, you know, traditional like job searches and things like that. And I'm a white woman, I can navigate these things and like that type of, of privilege to like go to college, get a good job, get out. Um, and that was a really easy path. And it, I wasn't really owning that that was the path I took <laughs> because in some ways it was easier and it felt better. One of the, the terms we use in, in community organizing is like agitation, this idea of really like pushing and sharpening on this is who you say you are and what you believe in and what you want to be. Let me hold up a mirror and show you your actions and how they're like conflicting with the values that you say that you have. So I was living in New York. I was living in Brooklyn. It was a lot cheaper then, but it's still, I was living in, in, in Brooklyn and, and teaching and thinking I'm, I might want to leave teaching because I was frustrated by so much that was happening in testing, especially for special ed kids. And this was like, you know, 2007, 2008. And, um, I started applying for all these positions in New York, like advocates for children of New York and other things. And like, there's so much need for that. They're great organizations, but it was like, positioning myself to lean into issues around poverty and around, you know, housing and around just economic issues with a set of people that like I was maybe going to build relationships with, but like didn't already have existing relationships with. Like I should had a good push from, from somebody I grew up with too. Like, why the hell are you doing that in a place where you're not even from? And I think people can do great work and do great organizing in places where they're not from. But I made a decision that I needed to lean back into where I was from to work more significantly on actually shifting how things operate here. So came roundabout back, but that's what ultimately brought me back. Was that the right decision? 
yeah, I think it was definitely the right decision. I wouldn't say it was the easy decision. So I think that the, yeah, there's like an important space of the intersection of, of, of right and hard. That is where I sit and where I've chosen to sit. Um, I think if I hadn't left, I don't think I'd be operating in this, in Missouri in the same way. One of the things we say on our staff team is hard things are hard. Sometimes we just need to say it out loud. Hard things are hard and we need to do the hard things and we need to build teams of people who can do the hard things and we need to be willing to do the hard things or they won't get done and the world doesn't change if we only do the easy things and only win the easy fights. There's a very small proportion of this country that is ever going to be doing okay. Um, So organizing in Missouri is hard and organizing Missouri is also right. And that does not change the fact hard things are hard. Yeah. um, Missouri wasn't always where it is politically, where it's been in the last 20, 30 years. But um, I can imagine it's a frustrating place to work on the progressive side, for sure. Can you tell me about your path once you get there in more detail to move? Take me through that, that journey. Yeah, you know, Obama only lost Missouri by about 3,000 votes in 2008. So I think a lot of folks forget that. You know, we were like the last state called for the Electoral College. And I think it was like a month or more after the election, uh, Missouri's electoral votes were finally allocated. But that was also the last major presidential election to invest key resources in the state. So by no means do I think that is the only element that like describes the current political space of Missouri. But there, there is a very important cause and effect that it lives within where do we make investments and then what are the outcomes in those states. Yeah, I guess we've had some Democratic senators from Missouri. We've had Democratic governors. It's been, it hasn't been a wipeout all the time. No, I mean, over the last 10 years, if you look at, um, we have like a lovely chart that we love to show folks. If you look at the balance, it's, we're almost equal in terms of statewide Republican outcomes and statewide Democratic outcomes. Um, And we're a state that I would say has a significant number of conflicted voters. So we, you know, like resoundingly defeated right to work um, in 2018 with two thirds of the vote. We won an increase to the minimum wage. We passed this game changing ethics reform all through ballot initiatives, all with like more than 60 percent of the vote. And a lot of those voters who voted for the minimum wage and against right to work and for ethics and campaign finance reform also voted for Josh Hawley. So we have large numbers of voters um, that we need to be engaging out of that conflict. I have peers across the country that are building progressive state power accountable to community-based organizations. And, you know, reeling after the uprisings of last year, both the, you know, the exciting progressive opportunities of that moment, but also the white lash that ensued out of the police killing motivated uprisings of last summer. We had our uprising in 2014. Ferguson uprising was in 2014 and like dramatically um, and in important ways and growing like really serious, like game changing black political power in the city of St. Louis in particular and grassroots organizations like Action St. Louis led by Kayla Reed. Um, There's a huge, amazing, positive power building that has come out of the Ferguson uprising. Like there's a lot about my own formation that was the significant amounts of time I spent um, in St. Louis, I live in Kansas City, but spent a lot of time there with my allies and the police violence I personally experienced in that time and how important that's been to my rootedness in the work in the world. But the white lash was also significant that came from that. And so we had the white lash of the Ferguson uprising and Trump, um, the rise of Trumpism 
and Trump's election in 2016. So some of the, the losses in terms of statewide office have been since that era and since that time. So the work of my member organizations, both from a perspective of like, how do we win campaigns? How do we build voter programs that can get to the people we need? That is both about deeply investing in Black political power building and lower propensity progressive voters, many of whom are underperforming and are a huge part of the math, but also simultaneously moving large numbers of white voters from uh, politics of this like this conflict, this like this orientation that I can both vote for raising the minimum wage, but also for Josh Hawley into a different orientation rooted in solidarity. Um, or minimum not being activated by dog whistle politics. So, you know, a lot of my journey from direct organizing into move follows a similar path politically as Missouri. It was um, winning a lot of things that we could win, trying to win as much as we can, and then really sharpening an analysis. Like we don't actually have all of the things we need on the field in order to get to the kind of governing power that's possible. And we're going to have diminishing returns in this cycle by cycle campaign only framework, particularly when independent political organizing, that whole sector of the IE universe in Missouri just wasn't organized, coordinated, or thinking really seriously about building voter power. And when we're talking about needing to engage, in some cases, very low propensity progressive voters and moving these large numbers of white folks, we need like organizing to be a part of that equation, this work happening between elections in which we're building trusted messengers and actually moving people along. We had that loss in 2012 at the ballot initiatives that was like a critical turning point in my brain thinking about power because we both did more than I ever thought we could. Like we gathered two thirds of those signatures through grassroots infrastructure. We had almost no money. Um, And things happened like somebody broke into a car seven days before the signatures were due in Springfield, which is the seventh congressional district, one of our toughest congressional districts we had to qualify. And we got more than that many signatures back in seven days through volunteer efforts because like everyone streamed down into the state. So like we did more than I ever thought we could have done. We had more power And it was still less than we needed because my conception of what was going to be required to not just have this win, but to be able to implement it was so much greater. Like I I needed to have this massive like brain agitation on on how much power we ultimately needed to build. And then in 2014, not much was on the ballot. So not much happened because we didn't yet have the muscles that we actually make things happen, that we can shape the electorate. As we're getting deeper and deeper into that election cycle, I was getting clearer that my ultimate prioritization and what I like what I wanted to get done in Missouri hadn't shifted, but what I needed to do day to day and how I could best use my muscles needed to shift. Like I wasn't best positioned on the chessboard at that time. And so worked with other allies and directors of, of, of peer organizations to imagine moving from like this informal coalitional orientation across our groups into actual an institution and infrastructure um, and building the C3 and C4 tables out. So I, I left at the end of 14 and spent 2015, frankly, doing a lot of hustling contract work to pay the bills, um, picking up little pieces of work here and there. I was leading a lot of the national payday lending work for Faith in Action um, as we were working on CFPB rules too. But like on the side was building out move, um, first the C3 table and then the next year the C4 table. So we launched in 2016, and that was the first time a lot of our organizations had even gotten van turned on. After that election loss in 2008, um, a lot of like national progressive infrastructure was just no longer in the state and, and folks weren't continuing to access it. 2018 was really, as much as we existed in 16, 2018 was really our first cycle 
and a major focus on those three ballot initiatives, beating right to work and winning a minimum wage increase and, and passing ethics and redistricting reform. So was it conceived of originally as part of state voices or national organization, or did it join that later? How does that fit in nationally, your organization? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we definitely knew that we wanted to replicate the function of state voices and America Votes tables. And they had existed in the state prior to that. There's a lot of things both for state voices and America Votes that have shifted over time and how they support tables and how they've built tables. Um, But we also knew we were a little different because we were this table um, that was deeply rooted in grassroots organizing at the center of its identity, like our core steering committee and membership is like each accountable to a grassroots base. Um, And, you know, there's other tables like this, but we were really clear, keeping it legal, that we wanted to have a strategic body that was both C3 and C4. So all of my organizations that can scale have built C3 and C4 entities, and they operate on both sides legally. And we were invited to join State Voices. I think it was in 2018. It was right around when Alexis Anderson Reed was coming on as the new executive director. Um, And so we are a full member state of State Voices, which is, you know, a real range of what those table states look like, depending on the political context of the states and what else exists in the ecosystem. And then we're a project state of America Votes. So that means we get our access to VAN through America Votes and we get some supports. We're not one of their core states, but they've been great to us and have always provided really excellent support. And and some of their staff members really helped me navigate beginning to build out the tables when I was looking for models in other places. And then we, you know, similarly to a lot of states thinking about progressive infrastructure, we've made it a real priority, especially like myself and my role, to be catalyzers of other parts of progressive infrastructure that need to exist. So we don't do all of the things, but where the gaps exist, how can we build something that can function in that gap? So um, we we did not build this, but one of my founding directors, the founding director of Missouri Jobs with Justice, um, ultimately moved on from Jobs of Justice in order to build out our donor table, Mo Win, and I believe that was in 17 or 18. 18 was their first cycle, um, which is a part of Committee on States and you know operates as an in-state donor table in close collaboration with us. And Mo Win led this even more than we did, like have worked to build out a pipeline organization, Lead Mo, that's focused on developing candidates, but also really focused on developing campaign staffing. Candidate staffing, like folks can come in, run a legislative race, and then hopefully stay in the state, get employed by an IPO potentially, and go on to even bigger and better things. We've built out a legal and compliance hub that helps us navigate the arcane and tense rules from the Missouri Ethics Commission and make sure we don't, like, not just not go to jail, but, like, not spend all of our time responding to inquiries or paying fines and fees, avoiding legal costs wherever possible. And then we're working to relaunch a Progress Missouri which hasn't been um, fully operational in Missouri for quite some time, but are hoping to hire an executive director there by the end of the year. The fundamental big goal of my organization is building a durable, progressive governing majority in Missouri, which we believe is about 1.6 million voters operating as a multiracial governing majority. There are parts of the field that we have to build our muscles around and do better and more. And then there's other parts of the field we're trying to activate to make sure that that, like not just winning elections, like Democrats winning statewide elections, is an indicator we're making progress towards that big goal. Um, but there's all different levels that we need to be operating at as, as progressive movement leaders to get there. So I think of you as something of a political entrepreneur getting an organization like that going. What'd you learn from putting together a new entity and standing it up from scratch and 
you know, staffing it and raising money for it that would be helpful to other people that might try to do something similar. Yeah, there's a lot of things I've learned. And there's also, there are a lot of people who talked to me as I was trying to build this that were really helpful. And I've had similar conversations with folks trying to build progressive infrastructure. So like, I'm actually here for that individualized conversation as folks are imagining that, particularly in red and purple states. But um, a few things, like one that was that was really important about the origin story of MOVE is we really did come from the leaders of organizations really doing the work in community. Like this wasn't, I came in with the idea that this needed to exist and how can I build a coalition of the willing? It truly was a set of in-state actors that had been in a depth of relationship with each other and wanted to contest for a different kind of power and commit to a whole different level of work. And it has been work (laughs) with each other. And that's not just about relationship. That's about all the work your organization now has to do if you're going to contest for 1.6 million voters with us. And, you know, there's an adage that I, I think the the intent of it is helpful, but but I actually don't think it's been my lived experience, this idea that the work moves at the speed of trust. Trust is a deeply important part of building movement infrastructure, of building progressive infrastructure, of being able to build something that lives beyond one campaign and is ultimately about contesting for power in a state. But trust actually comes from the work. It comes from like leaning in and doing things with each other and proving that you're accountable to what you'll say you'll be accountable to. I ascribe to an orientation of power abundance rather than power scarcity, even though my brain can sometimes default to power scarcity. And by that, I mean, you know, whatever moment in time, like I'm the person who does this thing the best. So I can't stop doing this widget making that I'm doing over here because I'm so good at it. Nobody could ever make widgets like I do. And that thing over there, that I only know how to do like half of the things that is required over there. I can never lean into that. Like until I individually, but then model as a like leader in progressive infrastructure, what it looks like to be willing to lean into a thing that involves a growth edge, but that I can actually like accomplish that with support and then make space at this other place I've been occupying for the next person to like kind of level up. That is how we get to a more exponential like level of capacity within the progressive ecosystem in Missouri. And, and I think in a lot of other states, and we also need to think about how do we set people up to be successful in that and not take, you know, one set of of struggles as a total failure. Our staff, especially in in like the time of COVID, has also been thinking about how do we model a commitment to like a really long-term transformative path in a state where the winds can sometimes feel few and far between? Like, what does that require to not set people up to be like, Pollyanna naive optimists, like everything's going to be great and just kind of trick people into hauling water. And so being realistic about what we're up against, but also like deeply clear that this is like what the film strip of the present moment is not the future we will be inheriting because we are going to shape it. Our current framework is thinking about how are we operating and modeling radical hope um, about that about like what is possible because we're going to change the conditions of the ecosystem to create a different set of wins in the future. Radical grace. And so that is like with each other, an orientation to assuming best intent, but still confronting bad impact, but also to the work. Like we we need to have an orientation that this work isn't going to be perfect and we need to learn from it. And like, we know it's not perfect. Perfect isn't the goal. Impact is the goal. And if we're not having impact, what is our grace orientation that isn't about shame and blame, but is about learning so we can do better. And then radical discipline. 
We need to get clear about what needs to get done. And then we need to do those things. And if we say we're going to do something, we need to do it or we need to renegotiate. And um, really building a team that understands they are the backbone in, in our instance, right? Being crystal clear. What is our function in the ecosystem? How do we deliver on that function? And your function is being a backbone. And that could feel crappy. But actually, it is catalyzing everything else to be possible. And how can you model those things and inhibit those things? And that is ultimately what builds the the rest of the ecosystem all around us. The world wants you to live in the film strip of a present moment. This is an impossible fight. Missouri is like not worth investing in. Go get a job at some national or whatever it may be. And like forcing the world to actually see a longer haul orientation and, and like build the organization towards that. That has made this meaningful and it's also made it have impact. So how would you, at this point in history, assess the strength of the progressive infrastructure in your state? How are we doing? So I would say right now in Missouri, we've gotten to a point where most of the vehicles and containers we need are built. And five years ago, that wasn't true. So like that's a tremendous amount of infrastructure that's been built in the last five years. And speaking specifically for independent political organization, integrated voter engagement, which is like our part of the field as like doing this voter engagement work, trying to do it year round and trying to win elections. We've grown tremendous muscles. We've gotten to a lot of scale and we've won really serious victories, but they've been ballot initiative victories. And so we've got some really important work to do to like lean into the tension in all of the partisan baggage and just political narrative challenges that we have across the country and really have in Missouri in order to like confront and disrupt that. And 24 in particular is a critical, critical year for us. And so in 22, we could have an opportunity to lean in and win, um, but we also need to be like learning and building a lot in that time. Um, there's a lot that that is a real struggle for, you know, traditional hard side infrastructure. I think this is true in a lot of states with like a lot of staff changes and turnover and, you know, party leadership change means leadership at different levels. And so there's a lot that like our Democratic Party infrastructure and state legislative leadership infrastructure is continuing to rebuild. And we're working, again, very legally, (laughs) how we can be better um, aligned when the walls are down and like even just thinking about, you know, what's public information and research and analysis so we can be thinking about and sharing the same brain. And that's all growth edges for us. If you were going to compare the infrastructure and resources and team on our side in Missouri with the other side, how does it look? I mean, we're definitely losing in that battle, um, but in in different ways. So like I actually right now, our um, Republican legislature is like fighting a pretty intense fight to try to shut down our initiative petition process because we've been winning there. Right. So there are certain places in which we've been ahead of the game and that we've been building one place we are just like woefully inadequate and building progress. Missouri is a critical part of how we bounce back, but it it can't be the only element is in just communications infrastructure, both formally, but also the informal networks that can make something go viral um, with like significant impact and success without needing to spend nearly as many dollars as we may need to, to get that same level of echo chamber. So there is like an infrastructure side of that, but there is also like a tapping into right messenger, right message element and, and just sharpening all those pieces in a lot of different parts of the state and not over-concentrating where we're making those efforts. 
um, that is one of our most significant gaps in the state right now. I think people who live in progressive strongholds have a hard time understanding why there are conservative strongholds. They don't understand, even in Missouri, you're talking about an electorate that will vote for progressive policy often when it's couched the right way, when it's targeted the right way. What is the other side offering that they're winning? Why did they vote by 15 or 16 points for Trump two times? Why are they putting out a Republican legislature? Why are they often electing outlandish people statewide in certain cases? What What's going on? How do you understand that? Yeah, I'll share the parts of like where my understanding exists. And then I think this is where that radical grace orientation is actually critical. We need to have the humility to be clear. Where do we not fully know the answer to this question and have a curious orientation to answer it with research, but also with real interaction with real people um, and test some things. So, um, you know, there's so much that is actually like deeply rooted in our history and our formation as a nation and as a state that goes back to like deep narratives that, that like show up over and over and over again. So there's a lot that we've actually done in what we call the Missouri power analysis of mapping out who has power in Missouri and who does it work for and the extent to which Throughout history, we see mostly rich white people who have a lot of power in a place doing an excellent job at setting up a narrative context in which people don't have enough, explaining why people don't have enough in a narrative context of there are Black people or there are immigrant people or there is somebody else. There is the scapegoating orientation. There is somebody else that you can blame for the reason that there is not enough. And you should orient your identity and your sense of belonging to me and what I stand for. And like the narrative, like that's a place where your identity and your sense of belonging is. Your identity and your sense of belonging doesn't live in a multiracial orientation. It doesn't live in a multiracial coalition or collaborative. Like that is another that you should be afraid of or you should blame or you can't identify with or have a sense of belonging with. And at some level, I think that sounds so simple and didactic where we reject how much that has played out from the first reconstruction through the time of the Rainbow Coalition, which was very strong in Missouri. Two of my member organizations were founded with the Rainbow Coalition, the Missouri Rural Crisis Center and the Organization for Black Struggle were founded at that time and actually formed an alliance back then in the 80s. Um, and all of the like strategies that were being used to divide their membership from solidarity with each other are the same strategies playing out in the wake of the Ferguson uprising and the wake of Trumpism and the most re- recent uprisings today. So that's already like potent and in our bones and in our blood at some level. And then you take organizing infrastructure and progressive infrastructure and campaign infrastructure that hasn't invested in engaging people deeply in a lot of parts of our state, like folks who have not had real encounters. They haven't had real opportunities or experiences in which they could be winning or they could be identifying or belonging in a different way. And the folks that are speaking to them speak that language that works so well. I'm not surprised we lose in some of those contests with a conflicted voter of like, where do you see yourself? Who do you identify with? How do you belong? The questions we're even working to ask well so that we can get answers that are usable is not even like, how did that identity formation happen? 
that you are feeling like Josh Hawley, who's a rich kid who went to private school and had to, you know, sell some bill about growing up in a farm town, Lexington, Missouri. My mother's family's from Lafayette County. They're poor sharecroppers up until the seventies in Lafayette County. They have nothing in common with Josh Hawley, but he, he is able to tell a narrative about who he is. Like we need to know why, but I'm actually less interested in why is that where you think you belong or who you think you identify with as much as how do we interrupt that? And who is the person that best helps us interrupt that for you? How do we learn how to do that large scale? But from particularly the perspective of my corner of the sandbox, how do we take some strategies that for the most part have only been pretty small scale, but research shows work like relational voting programs, like deep canvassing programs? And how do we get those to the larger scale that is going to empower us to, to not just like shift large numbers of voters, particularly white voters in the case of the persuasion work we need to do um, from that politics of, of Josh Hawley dog whistle fist in the air to an orientation to solidarity, but like ultimately some of them into a more transformative orientation that, that, that puts them in a position to be like leaders in their communities where we don't have enough leaders providing an alternative. Um, so it's the, you know, it's the $10 million keeping me up at night question, Nathaniel, to be honest. But I think if we're not honest, I think if we don't ask the question with some humility, both that we don't know the answer and that we haven't clearly been part of the solution and, and move beyond just an orientation of judgment of those terrible racist white people, we're never going to actually be able to get somewhere else. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I think to put it all onto a negative aspect for the other side is really probably misjudging most people and hamstringing your ability to understand why you lose. I'm trying to think about the other states and I'm sure you've watched other states are transforming. Some states are moving bluer, the Colorado's and the Virginia's and Georgia perhaps and, and states like that. And some of that's just demographic change. Some of that is really good organizing and, and kind of teamwork on our side or mistakes that other people have made on the other side or, or leaders that we've put up against them. And some states have moved a long way to the right, like the Arkansas or the West Virginias. Every state is in flux. What do you think it takes in Missouri? Are demographic trends in our favor there? Are organizing trends in our favor are they is it more likely that like just being fair despite all the work you might do that that the political culture is is getting away from us what's your crystal ball and and why do you see things the way that you do yeah i appreciate the question and i'll also offer one of the things that has been important to keep me grounded to the work is to stop pretending i have crystal balls um yeah it's you know, politics is way too hard yeah <laughs> and it it's just i think i my brain thinks in excel spreadsheets i want the world to be linear so goddamn badly and it's not and it's not we actually think about politics in this film strip of the present moment compared to the film strip of the past moment and we like there's a line graph that we can plot and it's bullshit because it's like 97 dimensional. And so that said, like, but your, your point is right on. I, I, I like the Rebecca Solnit orientation, the hope is that the, the future is dark and that's not actually necessarily a bad thing. So we have no idea what is the next political moment that's totally going to shake up the world. Um, but we know that in Missouri, 
we need about 100,000 more progressive, lower propensity voters, like folks who are not consistently voting to show up at the polls pretty consistently to like join the stable democratic electorate and have an alignment around our progressive policy issues. We need about 170,000 more conflicted persuadable voters to be consistently voting for progressive issues and democratic candidates. And we need about 80,000 new registrants who are actually turning out. So, you know, there's ways in which that math is going to shift a little bit here and there, and it's based on higher water marks on turnout. But like, we are actually using those numbers and key targeting to ground what does multi-cycle planning towards a durable majority look like? And how do we run our work in 22 to win what we can win in 22, but to build for 24 and beyond and ultimately work towards the transformation of the Missouri electorate? So that, like, that's our math. And that math isn't on a linear line plot, right? And it's going to, like, the analysis happens, you know, multiple times a year to keep shifting things up. But not only do we believe we can do both, like, the nation actually doesn't figure out how to exist as a nation if we can't figure out how do we simultaneously center building like radical black political power and BIPOC political power, like places like St. Louis City, where you've got Tashara Jones as mayor and Cori Bush as a congresswoman. Like that can exist simultaneous to being able to move large numbers of white voters at scale into a different orientation of belonging and identity. Um, that both of those things are possible and they require rooted organizations in collaborative, accountable, trusting relationship with each other to each compel their own bases out of like their actual real non-manipulated self-interest in which not only do we win things, but we govern, like we get policy victories that affect and change their lives. And in the absence of that, it's very easy to feel like, well, of course these aren't my people because they sold me a bill of goods. They told me to vote this way and then nothing happened and nothing changed in my life. Did you see the recent polling out of Iowa showing Trump moving well ahead of Biden in that state, which is not that dissimilar or far from where you are? How much of what happens in Missouri do you feel is sort of national politics, trying to get Congress to get through some legislation versus what's happening locally on the ground in people's lives? It's a really good question. I, I, so I truly do believe it's, it's both and. But one thing I know in Missouri, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is true in other parts of the country as well, but I think it's more stark in Missouri because we did have such a track record as a ticket splitting state where we would have, you know, Senator McCaskill win despite, um, you know, Obama losing Missouri um, in 12 and so on. We've had a lot of this where we have a statewide Democratic candidate win, even if um, the Electoral College has gone for a Republican. In the Trump era, we've seen a massive move away from that. And it, it actually was much more significant in 20 than in 16, where Jason Kander only lost his Senate race by three points. And you could argue if the Trump surge hadn't existed, we'd have Senator Kander right now. He was a very strong candidate. He was a great candidate. Chris Coster was, you know, like, well, like I think it was five points, though. I mean, it wasn't. So it was it was both the candidate, but also the time, yeah. the time that we were in. And um and it, which is more tracks Missouri's recent history. I mean, there's often been like a 10 point spread between statewide Democratic candidates in Missouri and presidential outcomes. Our candidate for governor, Auditor Nicole Galloway, was almost on par with um, Biden. Like there was almost no daylight 
between those margins. And so this increased polarization, I, I significantly blame on the extent to which that national landscape and orient, like this increasing polarization in general partisanship of the nation, like every state, Missouri included, is inheriting that. And, and then state infrastructure is having to contend with that in a way that I don't think was true five years ago. That really narrows the window unless you can move the the whole state in national politics, not just in state politics. Right, right. And so like if we're starting with that narrative foundation and then people are having an experience in their lives in which that narrative is not being contested, I don't see any way to break through that. That narrative is false, but contest for it in ways that actually impact people's lives. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying to fight the narrative war and trying to win it. We totally should. But if it is divorced from actual impact on people's lives, we're going to really struggle. This is a real challenge with ballot initiatives as well, because often we went on ballot initiatives because we're able to build real bipartisan coalitions. You know, how do we take the implementation of a great win like Medicaid expansion, which went into and been in effect, but folks have been able to start enrolling um, starting this past Friday. Like I have a brother who's going to get health care, who hasn't had health care in the state of Missouri because it, so few people were able to qualify who were non-disabled adults the deep work around how do we like brand victories and like connect narrative to things that will change in people's lives, not only like before they happen, but when they actually are able to happen and make sure that happens more often. What will you be doing in the run up to 2022 and 2024, your group? What is the main ground that you're telling? Yeah. So our, our work overwhelmingly my organization's work as a backbone is supporting our member organizations, grassroots, labor, independent political organizations in Missouri, and building integrated voter engagement plans that are going to be able to like win elections, particularly in November in 22 and 24. But we also have key things that will come up in the primary battles, largely related to ballot initiatives, most likely in August. Um, and that's like building the plan that reflects who are the people your organization can compel, but then how does that relate to this much larger targeting of who we need to win long haul? Executing the plan, building iterative, disciplined program that is starting from an analysis of what it takes to win, who do we need to target, that's informed by research that already exists, but maybe research that we compel ourselves, as well as your experience in your community. Like Both those things should inform the theory of impact you have, which is like, what is the script that gets the voter to do or say what? And then testing and assessing that. So doing like small scale versions of that leading up to more significant electoral moments and then running really large scale program that's consistently learning and growing. So my staff team is like, I don't know, not everyone knows the cartoon Voltron, but it's this giant robot that is made of all of these different parts of robot. All these different vehicles come together and they're all different vehicles. They all do different things. They come together and they make a giant robot that is called Voltron, Defender of the Universe. There was an 80s iteration of this and there's a current iteration. So if you're in like the right age or parenting bracket, you watch Voltron, Defender of the Universe. My staff is like Voltron's GPS device and mechanic. Like how do we support these organizations coming together to being the Defender of the Universe in Missouri? Um, and we're doing that with um, an eye in 22 224 and beyond. So we're clear the opportunity to take out a strategic racist like Josh Hawley is critical. And that work started yesterday. Um, so we're not compromising what we could possibly win in 22. But we're thinking very deeply about how do we actually think about targeting in an expanded way, especially before we get super close to the election with super low propensity voters. 
who are people who might not turn out in the midterm regardless, but like are really key targets for 24? How are we growing their interest in participation in public life now? So lots of research, lots of training, tons of coordination and analysis and trying to be bigger than the sum of our parts. I'm very appreciative that you're that you're working hard at that. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? Oh, that's a lovely question. And I, I didn't think of one in advance. So I don't know that I've got one. So, um, but thank you for asking it. Well, it's, it's an honor to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time. Anything else you want to say? No, I really appreciate it, Nathaniel. Have a good rest of the day. That was Molly Fleming. Molly is at movemo.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.